Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Audio Blog, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. First Reading Lessons by Art Middlecoff When Barbara and I made the decision to homeschool, we agreed that we would divide the teaching activities between us. I felt an overall sense of responsibility for the education of my children, so I intuitively chose the subjects that I felt, at the time, were either the most important or the most difficult. The year was 2003, and the one subject that seemed to be both the hardest and the most critical was reading. So I signed up. At that time, I was just exploring Charlotte Mason, so I did not take the time to deeply study her recommended approach to reading lessons. I glanced at it, but the advice seemed antiquated. Ivory letters? Seriously? I didn't trust it, so instead I reached for more contemporary resources. I jumped in and plowed through with my firstborn until I was convinced that he could read. Any difficulties he experienced along the way, I naturally assumed were his fault. I had not yet grasped the dictum of John Amos Comenius, If the boy does not learn, whose fault is it, save the teacher's? It was not too long after my firstborn was comfortably reading on his own that I got started with my daughter. In my wisdom, I thought I would start her at an even younger age. I followed more or less the same approach this second time around. My copy of Home Education was getting dusty, but soon enough my daughter was reading and narrating too. She seemed to be born to narrate, recounting stories and ideas and assuring her father that a child's mind is able to deal with its proper food. When it came time to teach my third child to read, my perspective was maturing. I was becoming more patient, and I was better understanding the personhood and individuality of my children. When my third did not pick up reading at the same pace as his older siblings, I found a delight in gently adjusting my pace to match his emerging capabilities. I found freedom in the perspective articulated in a 1955 Parents Review article. There are, however, many slow by nature to grasp mathematics or grammar. What is the teacher to do about them? Keep the work relevant, suited to the child's power of understanding. Give him a program easier than that of his form, easy enough for the confidence to return which Miss Mason wanted, and give him a sense of mastery, and no doubt with it the assurance that this teacher can teach after all. Or let the French dictée chosen be easy enough for some to get it all right, and none to feel defeated and silly, for that is to offend against their integrity. I resolved not to offend against my son's integrity. I slowed down until every step of the way he had a sense of mastery. The journey was a bit longer, but every step of the way was sweet. By the time I had released him to tackling books completely on his own, I had not just a new reader in the family. I also had a new special friend. From my experience teaching three quite different children how to read, I found that the contemporary method I had used did not really provide all the tools I needed to address the complex sensory, cognitive, and emotional elements of learning how to read. 
I had to fill in the gaps on my own by experimenting and by improvising, and I will never be able to unwind the mistakes I made along the way, or the consequences of those mistakes. It is with the benefit and humility of experience that I returned to home education to take a fresh look at Mason's advice on first reading lessons. Was there more to it than ivory letters? As I studied, my appreciation began to grow. After carefully analyzing all the components of Mason's approach to reading, the awareness began to dawn on me that here indeed was the full set of tools required to address the sensory, cognitive, and emotional elements of learning how to read. They were there all along. If only I had had eyes to see and a heart to trust those words 15 years ago. Charlotte Mason's home education underwent fairly significant changes between its first edition in 1886 and its fourth edition in 1905. Mason's first guidance on reading may be found in Lecture 5, Lessons as Instruments of Education, on pages 135 to 143 of the first edition. That section corresponds exactly with Part 5, Section 4 of the fourth edition of Home Education, which is the version that we generally use today. Found on pages 199 to 207 of Our Home Education, the structure of this original content from 1886 is as follows. 1. When children should learn to read. 2. Learning the letters. 3. Word-making exercises. 4. Sight-reading lessons. And 5. Assessment of the Method These five items are broken into paragraphs as follows. 1. When children should learn to read. a. It is an open question whether the child should acquire the art unconsciously from his infancy upwards, or whether the effort should be deferred until he is, say, six or seven, and then made with vigor. Note that the first edition only says seven. The six or was added in the fourth edition. b. A description of the plan that had been used by Susanna Wesley. The child began formal reading lessons with great ceremony the day after his or her fifth birthday. c. A wish that other mothers would keep records like those of Susanna Wesley. d. The notion of the extreme difficulty of learning to read is begotten by the elders rather than by the children. When tears are shed over the reading lesson, the fault rests with the teacher. 2. Learning the Letters A. Learning the sight and initial sound of the letters with the aid of ivory letters, making letters in the air, drawing letters in the sand, and learning the sound of the initial consonant. B. Teaching the letters intentionally from a very early age. This is to be directed by the parent, but is also delight-driven. It begins whenever his box of letters begins to interest the child. But he must not be urged, required to show off, teased to find letters when his heart is set on other play. It may start as early as age two. 3. Word-making exercises A. Exercises in making simple words by varying the opening consonant at the start of a syllable with a short vowel such as at. For example, bat, cat, fat, hat, etc. 
These are done with standalone words, not with actual sentences. No indication is given here of how old the child should be when these exercises should begin. B. When the previous exercises have become easy, move on to word making with a syllable using a long vowel such as eight. For example, late, pate, rate, etc. C. Move on to word making with syllables ending with a digraph such as ng or th. This is not reading, but it is preparing the ground for reading. Visualize the words being made in these exercises. Accustom him from the first to shut his eyes and spell the word he has made. Although reading is not spelling, but the habit of visualizing words as a whole is to be acquired from the first. Note that in the fourth edition, this paragraph is split with a new paragraph beginning at Accustom him from the first. This division obscures the fact that in the original manuscript, the habit of visualizing words was to be formed as part of the word-making exercises. D. The reason to develop this habit is that the vagaries of English spelling require us to recognize a word as a single, discrete symbol, rather than as a string of separate, phonetic symbols. Nevertheless, the formation of the habit of seeing whole words as discrete symbols should proceed in parallel, side by side, with the process of learning phonetics, the powers of the letters. 4. Sight Reading Lessons A. The first lesson begins with the first two lines of a nursery rhyme such as Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Make sure the child can read each word individually before reading the full two lines. No indication is given here of how old the child should be when these exercises should begin. B. Suggestions of suitable materials for early sight reading lessons. Prose is generally preferred to poetry. Twaddle is forbidden. C. Continuation of the first reading lesson. The child should hunt for the newly learned words on two or three pages of good, clear type. The lesson is occupied probably ten minutes. D. The next reading at sight lesson begins with a hunt for familiar words, presumably from the first reading lesson, followed by learning the next two lines of the nursery rhyme. Practice visualizing words by asking the child to spell one of the new words without the text before him or her. E. The child will understand the reading without an explicit focus on reading comprehension by the teacher. F. Insist on careful pronunciation during these sight-reading lessons. Every day increases the number of words he is able to read at sight, and over time the lessons become longer. With this method, the pace is good, as the child will learn two to 3,000 words in a year. Note that in the fourth edition, the paragraph is split with a new paragraph beginning at But What a Snail's Progress! And 5. Assessment of the Method A. The method is living. There is interest and liveliness as opposed to the deadly weariness of the ordinary reading lesson. The ordinary reading lesson offends the child by an abuse of his intelligence. That was the complete Charlotte Mason method for learning to read as of 1886. The key components were all present. However, there were a few ambiguities. Question 1. 
Is there anything from Susanna Wesley's example that Mason wants parents and teachers to follow? Question two. At what age should the sight reading lessons begin? Is it the same for all children? Is it related to Susanna Wesley's program of starting at age five? Question three. In the sight reading lessons, how are the children supposed to learn each word? What is the exact mechanic of this activity? Question four. At what age should word-making exercises, item three, begin? Is it an extension of learning the letters, item two, which begins as early as age two? Or is it to be connected with the sight reading lessons? Question five. In the word-making exercises, how should the parent or teacher choose which stems to use for these exercises? Perhaps to remove these ambiguities, Mason returned to the topic of reading in the very second issue of the Parents' Review in March 1890. The article was entitled The First Reading Lesson and appeared on pages 128 to 133 of the volume. When Mason revised Home Education for the fourth edition in 1905, she incorporated the text from this article as Part 5, Section 5. She kept the title the same, The First Reading Lesson, but added a new subtitle, Two Mothers Confer. She also added this footnote, It is so important that children should be taught to read in a rational way that I introduce two papers by the writer which have appeared in the Parents' Review in the hope that they will make the suggested method fairly clear and familiar. This reprint from the Parents' Review occupies pages 207 to 214 of our edition of Home Education. The hasty reader of Home Education might assume that page 207 continues the five-point logical sequence begun in section 4, pages 199 to 207. However, that assumption is incorrect, since section 5 is actually the contents of a standalone article written four years after section 4. Rather than being a continuation of section 4, it is actually a recapitulation. This can be seen from the structure of this section. 1. Introduction. Two mothers confer. 2. Learning the letters. This involves drawing the letters in the sand and begins before the babies are 2. 3. Sight reading lessons. A. A defense of sight reading is given. We recognize a word as a discrete symbol rather than as a string of separate phonetic symbols. B. The first reading lesson begins precisely at age six, on the child's birthday. C. The only prerequisite for the first reading lesson is that the child know his letters. No small readings allowed before the first official reading lesson. Following the example of Susanna Wesley, the first reading lesson was a solemn occasion too. D. Preparation by creating separate tiles or cards with the words from the first reading. E. The first part of the actual reading lesson, using word tiles. F. The second part of the first reading lesson, reading the actual text. G. Assessment of the first reading lesson. It is acknowledged that creating the word tiles is troublesome, but it is asserted that the words learned are retained. H. 
The duration of the first reading lesson is said to be a half hour. The child's high degree of interest tempted the teacher to make it longer. 4. Word-making exercises. A. Insistence on the importance of phonics. I cannot be satisfied that a child should learn to read without knowing the powers of the letters. B. The solution is word-building exercises. The exercises are scheduled in with reading lessons. We have alternate days, one for reading, the other for word-building. Word-building exercises help make the overall reading program living. That is one way to secure variety, and so the joyous interest, which is the real secret of success. Interestingly, the Parents Review article ends with a paragraph that was omitted from the fourth edition of Home Education. I suppose the word building would be practically spelling with you? But you must tell me about that another day. Anyway, I shall try your plan, but shall keep the children up in the sounds of the letters all the same. Thus, they will have two strings to their bow. This quote confirms when Mason speaks of spelling in the context of reading lessons, she is referring to word-making exercises. In the fashion of a true recapitulation, this second section on reading covers the five same points as the first, albeit in a different order. 1. Learning the letters. 2. When children should learn to read. 3. Sight-reading lessons. 4. Assessment of the method. 5. Word-making exercises. Furthermore, the recapitulation answers four of the five questions left unanswered by the 1886 exposition of the method. Question 1. Is there anything from Susanna Wesley's example that Mason wants parents and teachers to follow? Answer. Yes. Mason endorsed three elements from Susanna Wesley's example. Begin reading lessons on or the day after the child's birthday. Associate the first reading lesson with ceremony and solemnity. And resist the urge to begin reading lessons before this important milestone. Question 2. At what age should the sight reading lessons begin? Is it the same for all children? Is it related to Susanna Wesley's program of starting at age 5? Answer. Sight-reading lessons should begin at age 6. In this instance, she departed from Susanna Wesley's example. Question 3. In the sight-reading lessons, how are the children supposed to learn each word? What is the exact mechanic of this activity? Answer. The detailed approach involving the use of word tiles, as well as clean text, is fully explained. Question 4. At what age should word-making exercises, item 3, begin? Is it an extension of learning the letters, item 2, which begins as early as age 2? Or is it to be connected with the sight-reading lessons? Answer. Mason provides a critical clue in the recapitulation that answers this question. We have alternate days, one for reading, the other for word-building. Since Mason was quite explicit that reading lessons do not begin till age 6, one must assume that word-building exercises also begin at age 6. Otherwise, how could they be on alternating days? Furthermore, Mason explicitly states that the only prerequisite for the first reading lesson is that the child know his letters.
Question 5. In the word-making exercises, how should the parent or teacher choose which stems to use for these exercises? Answer. This question is left unanswered by the first recapitulation. However, the article ends with a promise that this final question will be answered soon. I suppose the word building would be practically spelling with you, but you must tell me about that another day. That other day came in July of 1891, when Mason provided her third and final installment in her series on teaching reading. It appeared in the second volume of the Parents' Review and was entitled First Reading Lessons, pages 463 to 468. Interestingly, the title of the article was under the heading Parents and Children, a Sequel to Home Education. Most of the chapters in Parents and Children appeared as articles in the Parents' Review before they were compiled into Mason's second book in the Home Education series. Evidently, Mason intended to include a chapter on reading in Parents and Children. However, six years later, when Volume 2 was published, this article was not included. In fact, first reading lessons would not be included in any of Mason's books until the 1905 fourth edition of Home Education, when it was included as Part 5, Section 6, pages 214 to 222. Renamed Reading by Sight and Sound, it was placed immediately after the first reading lesson from 1890. But there is no hint in the text of Home Education that this is the beginning of a second Parents' Review article. However, the knowledge of its origin helps the modern reader understand that this is actually a second recapitulation of the original five points about reading. It does not directly follow sections four and five in a single logical sequence. The structure of this third and final exposition of reading lessons is as follows. 1. Learning to read is difficult. A. Writing in 1891, Mason does not seem quite so optimistic as in 1886 when she wrote, This notion of the extreme difficulty of learning to read is begotten by the elders rather than by the children. Mason's more sober assessment is now, How contrary to nature it is for a little child to occupy himself with dreary hieroglyphics. Nevertheless, let us do what we can to make the task easy and inviting. B. Reading is neither science nor art, and is immensely complex. 2. Summary of Charlotte Mason's method to learn reading. A. The approach includes both sight reading and word building. Mason, for the first time, here explicitly connects the two. That he shall be able to build up new words with the elements of these words that he shall know at sight. B. The approach becomes living by connecting the arbitrary symbols of words and letters with ideas of interest. C. Even word building exercises must always be based on real words and not be a context free technical activity. 3. Sight reading lessons. A. The first reading lesson. As with the first recapitulation, the assumption is that Tommy knows his letters by name and sound, but he knows no more. The first reading selection this time is, I like pussy, her coat is so warm, instead of twinkle twinkle little star or cock robin. B. The logistics of making the word tiles. 
C. The first part of the actual reading lesson using the word tiles. This directly corresponds to the first recapitulation. 4. Word-making exercises. A. The first word-making exercises. It is explicitly described as Tommy's second lesson. This had been previously known only by implication from the first recapitulation, which said, We have alternate days, one for reading, the other for word building. It is also called a spelling lesson, directly connecting it to the word-making exercises of the 1886 edition, where these exercises were also referred to as spelling. B. Detailed description of word-making exercises. The stems to be used for the exercises are taken directly from the reading of the previous day. In this example, the stem oat is taken from coat. Only real words are used in the exercises. New sentences are formed with the assembled words. C. Unknown words are handled by counters, creating an appetite for learning. D. Additional word-making exercises. Stems are taken from the sight-reading lesson. Exceptions are noted but not explained. We let it grow into him gradually after many experiences. Newly constructed sentences must always make sense. E. New words are recorded in a notebook. 5. Assessment of the method. A. Lessons do not strictly alternate between sight-reading and word-making. If there is no suitable stem to use from a sight-reading lesson, then another sight-reading lesson may be followed the next day. B. The method is a living way. It whets our appetite for knowledge. The child has courage to attack all learning and has a sense that delightful results are quite within reach. There is no stumbling, no hesitation from the first, but bright attention and perfect achievement. His reading lesson is a delight, and the method is contrasted with a dreary grind. This second Parents Review article confirms the prior answer to question four. Question four. At what age should word-making exercises begin? Is it an extension of learning the letters, which begins as early as age two? Or is it to be connected with the sight-reading lessons? Answer. Again, Mason indicates that the only prerequisite for the first reading lesson is that the child knows the individual letters, not how to combine them. She writes, Tommy knows his letters by name and sound, but he knows no more. Furthermore, by using the term spelling lesson, Mason directly connects this exercise to the word-making exercises of the 1886 edition, where these exercises were also referred to as spelling. Note again that the paragraph split in the fourth edition on page 203 obscures the fact that the habit of visualizing words was to be formed as part of the word-making exercises, a fact made clearer by the paragraph structure of the first edition on page 139. And lastly, this second Parents Review article answers the final question left open from 1886. Question 5. In the word-making exercises, how should the parent or teacher choose which stems to use for these exercises? Answer. 
The question is now answered. The word-making exercises should be based on stems drawn from the prior day's sight-reading lesson. With this second recapitulation of the method, the Charlotte Mason educator has all that he or she needs to implement the method. Mason collected the three descriptions together in the fourth edition of Home Education, and as far as I know, never returned to the subject. Now that we understand that sections 5 and 6 of Home Education are later recapitulations of section 4 from 1886, we can easily see how the three sections align into a single coherent method. 1. Learning the letters and sounds, starting around age 2, delight-based. 2. First reading lesson, sight reading, starts with ceremony at age 6, structured but living. 3. Second reading lesson. Word making. Organically interconnected with sight reading lessons. 4. Reading lessons continue, roughly alternating on a daily basis between sight reading and word making. Charlotte Mason wrote in Parents and Children that there is no subject which has not a fresh and living way of approach. Indeed, finding the living way for any given subject is one of the primary tasks of the Charlotte Mason educator. In pages 199 to 222 of Home Education, Charlotte Mason has outlined a complete living way to teach reading that addresses the complex sensory, cognitive, and emotional elements of learning how to read. However, the modern reader must read these pages carefully understanding that they were not written at one time as part of a single logical progression. Rather, they were written as three separate and independent pieces in 1886, 1890, and 1891, covering the same underlying method, but with different points of emphasis and explanation. There are so many living elements of this method that it is hard to catalog them all. Here are a few. 1. The approach with the younger children, below age 6, is completely delight-driven and is always a joy. The child is never pressured or pushed beyond his or her limit. 2. The first reading lesson is presented as an honor to the child, a kind of rite of passage rather than a burden or a duty. 3. Living books are always used for every reading lesson. 4. All word-building exercises are tied to living books and real words that symbolize compelling ideas. 5. The lessons are never rote or dreary, but are always engaging and fun. 6. The method is alive to the reality that the English language simply cannot be learned by phonics alone. Charlotte Mason wrote in 1886, There would be no little books entitled Reading Without Tears, if tears were not sometimes shed over the reading lesson. But really, when that is the case, the fault rests with a teacher. I am a homeschooling father who taught three children to read. My great regret is that there were tears, at least at first. I thought the contemporary resources had the answers, and so I used them. I didn't trust a Victorian British educator who talked about ivory letters. Little did I know that this educator knew the secret of all education. It is to find the living way, the way that invites the living educator, the Holy Spirit of God. Her way is a timeless way, and I believe is the answer for the 21st century educator. 
if I have the blessing of some day teaching a grandchild to read. For me, the first step will be to obtain a set of ivory letters, and that will begin a road of delight for student and teacher. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Audio Blog. We hope you enjoyed the program. 